my honor to introduce to you Professor Xuxiang Chen, Professor of Chinese and Comparative Literature at the University of California at Berkeley, Chairman of the Department of Oriental Languages, Editor-in-Chief of the Translation Series of Middle Chinese Dynastic Histories, Director Current Chinese Language Project, a Guggenheim Fellow in Chinese Literature. His publications include <clears throat> Modern Chinese Poetry, Biography of Ku Kai Chi, Lu Qi's Essay on Literature, and numerous works in literary criticism and philology published in English, Chinese, French, and Japanese. Professor Chen will speak on the topic, Recreation of the Chinese Image. Professor Chen. Thank you, Mr. Flood, Mr. Pei. Um, I felt uh, I was being introduced uh, like an old man without toys. <laughs> uh, and uh, in order to save time, uh, I will just go ahead with the serious business of uh, reading the paper. Uh, the the announced title of this paper must be amended. It uh, may sound too pretentious, recreation of Chinese image. And may I beg of you for a moment's leave to explain. I gave it to Mrs. Uh, Michalski from long distance in a short phrase to save some telephone money for pain. Therefore, uh, the <laughs> subtitle <laughs> I had some personal experiences and observations of translation was not given on the telephone and must be added. And that is what I had primarily thought I would and now indeed will mainly talk about. But I was uh, naturally fascinated by the general theme of this conference, the translator as creator, conveyed to me by our committee chairman, Mr. Payne. And I felt I should look toward it as our mecca, as I searched my experiences and, and observations for a presentation. My mind, of course, was on the translation of Chinese literature, especially of Chinese poetry. Image making, a major concern of all poetic creation of the world since high antiquity, now particularly prized in modern criticism, has for at least a half century been thought abroad as not only the mark of the native talent of Chinese poets, but the natural gift of the Chinese language. The duty of the translator from Chinese then would seem to be to recreate the richest imagery, and if the translator is regarded as creator, he would seem to have the amplest supply of material and inspiration. But by the same token, his task is all the more arduous, his responsibility all the heavier. At this point, I may say the question of translator as creator can be somewhat clarified, if only because in the case of translation between Chinese and Western languages, the problem is, man is magnified. It should be obvious that the more divergent any two languages are, the greater the challenge to the translator. Furthermore, though indeed there may seem to be more room and opportunity for him as a creator, the greater demand on him 
to realize the optimum amount of rich properties from one totally different language into another restricts rather than increases his freedom if he is to be a responsible creator or a recreator and not a carefree inventor. We are aware of his difficulties, but neither are we to exaggerate them. We want to see how his work can somehow be properly done. It may be helpful here to observe really how different Chinese is from Western languages in general, and from English in particular, and see in the process some larger implications of the question of the translator as creator than it may offhand appear to have. In terms of languages, we might think of the question as a merely technical one, but in a broad, long-range historical view, I believe the question should be considered for its large cultural <laughs> or intercultural significance as well, so we may not have all the time to go into it here. Let me, for the time being, assume that it's all true, though admittedly simplistic, that Chinese is an imagistic language, so inherently apt for image-making. Its counterpart or opposite, then, an Indo-European language, say English, would by contrast be more discursive, hence felicitous for logical presentation and convenience of idea. But it does not follow that all Chinese poetry is imagistic poetry. And even though it were true, not all imagistic poetry can be ipso facto good poetry. On the other hand, when Mr. C. Day-Lewis says that an image, a poetic image, is a picture made out of words, he's not thinking of Chinese words. He's surely not thinking of such word pictures of the Chinese script as have been indiscriminately called ideographs. But he is referring to such marvelous image as made in English words, by Meredith, for instance dark grows the valley, more and more forgetting. Or that by another poet, in a line perhaps just as familiar and admirable, a rose-red city half as old as time. Of cities and time, the Chinese genius has produced equally memorable poetic images. The Tang poet Wang Jian, whose date is uh, 750 to 835, has left us this one. And much earlier in the 4th century BC, Qu Yuan in his Li Sao, known as the Unconscious Sorrow in English translations. Uh, Mr. Payne was the first one who brought it out. <coughs> Which uh, is perhaps uh, the most celebrated work of all Chinese poems, presented at the climatic point, the unforgettable image of irrevocable time expressed in utter despair. Now, we may consider, is it a sensible question to ask whether the Chinese couplet by Wang Jian and the line by Qu Yuan are more imagistic, or imagistically more effective than the English lines earlier quoted? 
At this very moment, I think it's safe for me to assume that among this distinguished audience, no matter how enthusiastic about Chinese poetry, many of us may not feel the Chinese lines majestic at all. Not to say more majestic than English lines. I can imagine the polite murmur that uh, despite the sonorous pitch accents and distinct cadences, we do not understand what they mean. <laughs> and it would not improve matters much if I uh, wave at you um, or even project on a screen for you thus to see the manuscript on which the 16 Chinese characters were written. The characters, the word pictures as ideographs, bless the heart of Mr. Pond, just do not perform the instant magic. Through the, through the language barriers, poetic images, or poetry for that matter, cannot just be, but in due respect to Ms. McLeish, must mean as they cross the cultural and linguistic border. It is the translator's task to make them mean as they be. And if he brings them into being, into such being as poetry must be in another language, his process, whether through hard labor or inspiration, is not short of being creative. Let us see how the Chinese couplet and line, so beloved of their native, sensitive readers as unforgettable, soul-stirring poetic images can be re recreated in translation, and how the results make them stand beside and emulate their peers in English originally created. Along with a, a rose-red city half as old as time, the Chinese couplet says through other valley, in the southern land, many birds sing of towns and cities half unwalled. Half unwalled. <laughs> and the line of Yuan, through much of my hard labor, now come in as well as be. Time, pallid and opaque, soon will be setting. This, I hope, may find kindred company with the lines of incomparable melancholy beauty praised so highly by Yeats of Robert Burns. The white moon is setting behind the white wave, and time is setting with me all. I do not know, of course, the exact process of Willis' inspired translation, but I can tell his way of discriminate those subtle and slight elimination and addition not being at all bound by the Pandian popular etymology or the grammarian's liberalism, literalism. But more important, his sense of the wholeness of the relationship among all the words, which would only fall apart through etymological reproduction, or would become through the overplay of the word pictorial ideographic fancy only a puzzling heap of broken images of a mutilated kaleidoscope after Christmas Eve. Last but not least is his sense of euphony of the original as well as his translation. We know it is but a vain hope to reproduce the exact sounds of one language, including even onomatopoeia uh, in another. But the quality of the euphony in the original 
especially when it subtly contributes to the poetic expression, giving it such a total sense of sound, form, sense, and feeling as any successful poetic image must be, can and should be grasped by the translator in his most sensitive and alert reading. And when he is able to reproduce the quality, his simulation transcends the mere sounds, but carries over or distills parts of them to fit the total effect of another language for its feeling and sense, as well as the euphonic expressiveness that is transformed. In such an instance of intense, complete alertness, resulting in such imitation, the translator's state of mind, as well as his accomplishment, deserves to be called creative. It is no, it's no less than genuine mimesis of high order. For a good reader of both Chinese and English, trained to be sensitive about imagistic effects, and I hope for the good audience here, now somehow tuned up, as it were, to the fusion of sound, sense, and vision. Tianan Duo Niao Ming, Zhou Xian Ban Wu Cheng, is quite like in the southern land many birds sing of towns and cities half are unwalled. If the English lacks the melodic sonority of the Chinese pitch accents, it, it, it compensates by a greater number of nasal consonants to echo richly the original symphony, and just enough additional light sibilants and open walls to modulate it. We are aware that the analysis of sound effects on the expressiveness of poetic sense is often a tricky game, and maybe only an appreciative afterthought. The inspired translator, in this case, Mr. Arthur Whaley, might be most likely not at all conscious of the phonological counterparts when he recreated these lines. But while sound and its literal meaning in linguistic convention must be exclusive to each language, we may believe with Sir Richard Paget that there is the universality of language as gesture in its primary or primeval expressiveness, which is shared by all races despite latter-day cultural differentiations. This, I think, is precisely what Muriel Rukeser calls, as she did so brilliantly yesterday, the equivalent music. The thing that she says is beneath all languages. National linguistic habits having largely to cater to the workday humdrum business communications, like uh, the coffee stir stickers, which uh, Mural yesterday discovered, would tend to blend and deafen the user to the primal vivid expressiveness of the language as gesture, which should have universal appeal. A translator at his happiest moment can prove this by taking the best expressions of one language and empathetically making them yun again with fresh vitality in another tongue. In doing this, the translator restores 
in fact advances a new consciousness among all readers, including both foreign and native, of the pristine quality and the power of the literary art, which basically share universal principles, and which through him can overlap, uh, can overleap linguistic boundaries and unite more peoples among humanity in the finest thoughts and feelings. To this extent, as well his responsibility as his achievement is that of a creator. If he happens to be working between Chinese and English, the two languages which are not only so vastly different, but of which the one is so old and conventionalized, and the other so full of wears and tears by the widest youths of modern business world, the challenge to him is all the greater, and his accomplishment is the rarer feat. He has to know all the old Chinese conventions, but be able to see the poetic image afresh. His English rendition would be with a sense of rediscovery, a new sense of identification of the poetic mind, over above all the apparent dissimilarities of languages and the remoteness of cultural traditions. I think I can fairly assume that Mr. Whaley had experienced the music of La Belle Dame Saint Merci, as well as the image of a rose red city half old, as old as time, when he rendered in the southern land many birds sing the, of towns and cities half are unwalled. A thrilling sense of identification is there, with some of the Chinese musical thought carried over, as well as that of English revived, but he copied none. For he, as a translator of unfailing fidelity, thus created, and I can certainly confess that in my humble effort of rendering Qu Yuan, time, pallid, and opaque, soon will be setting, I was very conscious of Burns, the white moon setting behind the white wave and the time setting with me all. Yet at the same instant, I was deeply affected by the melodic sound of despair of the Chinese original, as much as by the vision and feeling of melancholy beauty that constitutes the poetic image, shi ai ai ji jiang pi xi. Hence, time, pallid, and opaque is the mimesis in result. I must say also that at the moment my attention was raised above the word picture or individual ideographs, and even the original grammatical construction, though my comprehension had initially been firmly rooted in them. Now looking back, I see that the original word order is preserved and the sense of every word reduplicated, but this was not my real concern in translation. I read I read the line until I saw before me the poetic image of time. There appeared the eerie vision of dimming but ever hunting light, as if also audible with the mocking voice of, irre of irrevocable fate, distinct but distant but distinct, which the poet at the climatic moment of his lament recognized when in deep anguish resounded his outcry. For I, I, my choice 
of pallid and opaque, with the suggestion of a slight internal rhyming effect, as if he mimicry was not a foremost <coughs> conscious phonological design when I was translating. But I was most conscious of the poetic image as a total fusion of sound, vision, passion, and even intellect, and let the appropriate words spring up in mimesis. From this experience as translator to recreate a poetic image, whether the result is complete success or failure, as an object lesson, I may suggest that Mr. Lewis' definition of the poetic image be slightly modified and to read, the image is a picture made out of word music rather than just word. This, I believe, is at, is at least of special benefit to advise on translation from Chinese into Western languages. When Lewis spoke of words, he could take for granted that words in Western languages are presented in phonetic scripts mainly, if not merely, as auditory properties. Words, when they make poetic images, therefore presuppose word music. What I want to emphasize is that the Chinese words, despite the peculiar fact that they are represented in character scripts, properly called logograms, are no less auditory properties. Their word music may be even more evident because of the inherent melodic quality of their tonal or pitch accents to differentiate meanings. What may be less evident, but perhaps even more important, is the fact that the famous isolated nature of the Chinese language is totally uninflected monos is totally uninflected monosyllabism and is sparing use, if not thorough avoidance, of any grammatical connectives. Make the, the sense of the Chinese sentence or poetic line more dependent on the rhythm, cadence, and sometimes even rhymes and assonances modulated according to something like the principles of counterpart and harmony in its phraseology to determine meanings in the whole symphonic context. I stress this point because the Phanelosan exotic approach, armed with Ezra Pound's inventive genius of popular etymology, has actually mistaken, has actually mistaken the Chinese script by illusions of the eye for the Chinese language whose real significance lies in the arrangements of the musical syllables on the tongue. Indeed, the script of any language could have visual attraction. If a Chinese were indoctrinated to believe that the English script were all that visually symbolic, he might see in the white moon is setting behind the white wave and time is setting with me all that round-shaped O stood for a full setting moon. And so many W's and M's were pictures of the wave. Maybe Burns had all that imaginary Chinese genius. A Dostoevsky character says, without God, all is possible. We might say, too, for an imagined language without natives, all is possible. 
Mr. Pang's great achievement in his kazi is because of his universally admired incomparable lyrical gift to make the Chinese poems sing in English, as few other translators can. His translation of the Shi Jing or Confucian Odes later, where I sense he's even less preoccupied with his popular etymological fancy, produces the most effective mimicries of the pristine ancient Chinese lyrical voice. Of his inserted drawings of Chinese characters in his cantos, I will say nothing. For the cantos are not translations. He is free to invent. And with his genius, he can make any chimera look a normal animal in his fabulous zoo. A man of such singular genius can do anything and be justly celebrated for his accomplishments, including his inventive Chinese etymology for his creative translation. But such innovation, once welcomed as ingenious and original, can be done only once by one man. He must not be copied. And one would hope his popular etymologism never be imitated. I may seem to be stressing or overstressing the importance of the auditory, phonetic, euphonic, and musical quality of the Chinese language for semantic as well as for aesthetic understanding. If so, it's because I wish to balance or somehow to correct, if I may, the impression of the Chinese language owing to its Fanalosin Pandian influence, which still felt among other translators and still fascinates Western creative writers. Let me say that truly scientific analysis of Chinese etymology is of immense value and of indispensable service to the profound understanding of Chinese language. But even then, it must be remembered, as serious philologists have long since agreed, that it is the phonetic parts or phonetic cognates, not the radicals or so-called signifiers of the characters that reveal the primary etymons of the words. The pictorial ideographical aspects of the character script serve as, at best for the native writer and reader and should for any translator, therefore, as only reminders of certain associative meanings. Most often only as second thought, as decoratives. It is how the words sound, especially how they modulate in relation to the rest of the sentence or, or the whole work, and not how they look when, they, when broken into isolated bits that really matter to the intended creative or mimetic sense. It may be added that some philologists, even very serious and respected ones, in their fervent etymological pursuit, do tend to isolate and break the characters into tiny bits and look for meanings of the sentence. It is like what Bernard Berenson once said, I think, of some 19th century German critics, that they break a watch into microscopic tiny parts and want to hear how it ticks. Of course it won't. What they may still hear are often incoherent whispers in 
strange monotones of their own fancy. And what they are, and what they see are broken images beyond normal recognition. But among these, far between, there may once in a while appear someone of genius, like Pound, though of a different specialty, who yields spectacular results for scientific and cultural information. But they are still something else than translation. We recognize that in the general field of translation, even though we confine ourselves only to speaking of translation between Chinese and Western languages, or merely English, there could be endless arguments about theories. Each one's persuasion may be regarded as a bias influenced by his upbringing, professional habits, and personal experience with specific materials. On what we can and perhaps do agree, it may be on principles so broad and obvious that it may not actually take us very far. However that may be, let us try at least for a moment to pursue the broad area of agreement and see how or whether it may, be, may possibly be made somehow to work in practice. And my emphasis is on practice. Thorough comprehension of the original, we say, and a perfect representation of it in translation can certainly be agreed on as the ideal. But this proposition we may find to be not only utopian, as all ideals are, but on close examination to be antinomous. This antinomy, I hope, will be instructive. For thorough or nearly thorough comprehension of any great work may be much better represented in, in a huge volume of analytical criticism than in translation. And perfect representation in at least the material sense is as impossible for any creative artist as for the translator, unless it be entire replica. Here the consideration of the translator as creator again may become relevant. The antinomy reveals his limitations, restrictions, as well as his special privileges and possible distinctions. Unlike, unlike the, the critic of whether texture, philosophical, or aesthetic concern, the translator cannot discourse, but must imitate, though he must have implicit understanding of all these concerns. More like the creative artist, he, in his mimesis, must necessarily transform. But for him, there is the additional discipline required, that of fidelity to the original voice, idea, and the imagery. He has his work cut for him. He is somehow predestined sutter resatus must seal a garment, must seal a garment of essentially exotic pattern, yet he must domesticate it so that it becomes acceptable, uh, acceptable, but also distinguishable as new fashion. He must have painfully studied every stitch and hem of the original article, but must in his production all show the least of the seamy side of his learning. He has to appear innovative for his new public, 
but he better know well how the foreign model has been enjoyed by the best of minds among his original admirers, so that the new taste he introduces be not spurious. Sometimes this knowledge helps a good deal. Here I might state an experience of a reversed situation of my translating from English into Chinese. It was a passage from Ben Jiangsen's Alchemist. I was deeply struck by the biting force of outrage in the dramatic speech and its tremulous emotion. But too engrossed by the strong diction, I was at a loss how to produce it in Chinese without some good native guidance. I needed the help of those who were brought up with the tradition and who must have read the original much better than I. Then I noted Mr. Ivor Winters' admirable analysis of Jiangsen's 